0: Medications have certainly saved the lives of many of my patients, but I don't think it's the only solution. And as I've evolved in my career, nutrition has really played a role in understanding a person's lifestyle, metabolic health, and also a way to really help them feel emotionally fit.
1: We have to really cultivate what are ways that we can metabolize toward trauma? What are ways we can clear this out and retrain our nervous system, retrain our brain to be more in a parasympathetic state and support vagal tone from that side as well.
2: Welcome to Commune, my name is Jeff Krasnow. Today we're exploring mental health. Now our cultural understanding and awareness of this term has significantly evolved in recent years. From media coverage of mental health related stories to Celebrities discussing their challenges from global events like World Mental Health Day to public institutions investing more in services. These efforts all ultimately lead to more access to information on how to address what has become a global epidemic. As our awareness around mental health has increased, so have research efforts geared towards unraveling both internal and external factors that contribute to our mental disorders. An emerging area of study has been the link between the health of our gut and the health of our minds. This gut-brain relationship is complex and dynamic. Now, there are several ways in which they are connected, including but not limited to the vast community of microorganisms collectively known as the gut microbiome. These microorganisms play a crucial role in maintaining brain function. Now, our gut microbiota contribute to the production of important neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and GABA. Now, these molecules play an essential role in regulating mood, stress, and anxiety. Now, today's episode is a series of excerpts from conversations that I've had with today's experts on the topic of mental health with specific emphasis on its relationship to the gut brain axis the bidirectional communication system connecting the central nervous system and the enteric nervous system of the gut first up is Dr Uma Naidu she is a Harvard trained psychiatrist professional chef and nutrition specialist triple threat Her work focuses on how food literally feeds your moods, molecule by molecule. So without further delay, here's Dr. Uma Naidu on the relationship between gut health and mental health. You're best known as a nutritional psychiatrist. Um, And for those of us who are unfamiliar with that term, maybe you could unpack, what is a nutritional psychiatrist?
0: You know, Jeff, it's a nascent and emerging field in psychiatry, and it is really the use of healthy whole foods and nutrients to improve mental well-being alongside traditional therapies like psychotherapy, which I still feel the different types are super important, as well as the use of medications. Medications Mm -hmm. have certainly saved the lives of many of my patients, um, but I don't think it's the only solution. And as I've evolved in my career, nutrition has really played a role in understanding a person's um, lifestyle, metabolic health, and also a way to really help them feel emotionally fit.
2: Mm. And you see
0: patients. I do see patients um, and I continue to learn from them. I feel the integration of clinical work as well as the research is key because you can't just do an important study and not see the effect on a patient. And I think that, that... has been very important in my career.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, you give a lot of anecdotes in your book yeah. um, about specific patients mm-hmm. that, that you see and, uh, and having that hands-on experience and seeing how alterations to diet protocols, um, I don't know if we really want to call it diet necessarily, mm-hmm. but how one can introduce and remove different foods right. um, can have a significant impact on one's mental state. And uh, I want to probe that with you.
0: Yeah, you know, they certainly do. I think that the way that I like to portray it to patients is that there's so many foods they can add to feel better. And as we add food, they feel a greater sense of abundance than restriction. And then we start to cut back on Mm -hmm. the the bad players in the diet that they they could actually be um, replacing with healthier versions. Um, And I think it's key because a lot of, you mentioned you know, diet. And a lot of people think when they hear yeah, that word, is restrictive, and food does not, cannot taste, cannot taste um, good. You know, and I think right. that that often puts people off.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that the diet culture has really worked.
0: It has not worked. I
2: mean, and it continues think, to fail. No, <laughs> yeah. I you know I, I read yeah. some figure that 80 percent of Americans are on a diet yet year over year where we continue to see yeah. uh, increases in metabolic dysfunction or metabolic syndrome and obesity, yeah. et cetera. So yeah. I'm not sure that diet culture is working. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, you do such a fantastic job at yeah. illustrating how, you know, we can still have this very vibrant relationship with food. Yes, but that also loves us back, right? Correct. <laughs> I love how you said that. Yeah. It
0: loves us back. And, and we learn in small and steady ways the small tweaks that we can make to um, just to feel better. I had this great example recently. I had presented as a keynote at a conference in the UK last year. And one of the doctors um, came up to me and said, you know, after I heard your talk last year, I learned such an important fact that I didn't know how to interpret the amount of sugar in my food because I looked at food labels and I couldn't understand that four grams of sugar was one teaspoon. Right. But when you gave examples and you called out, you know, fruited yogurt, um, whether it's a dairy version or, or a non-dairy or plant-based version of yogurt, I hadn't thought about that. And so I switched my yogurt to plain mm-hmm. and I stopped eating the cakes and cookies in the office even though they were there. I just thought, let me let me see what happens um, without these. And he lost s- close to eight to 10 pounds over the year,
2: mm.
0: simply only doing that. Amazing. Not doing anything, I mean, regular exercise and things like that. But he said, just cutting out that amount of sugar that I'd been eating in the office um, and switching my yogurt were very powerful. So I think it's about those little tweaks you can make without feeling deprived.
2: Yeah, and you know we often associate vicious cycles with downward spirals. Yes, um, but there can be a sort of upward positive spirals There too. can be many positives, true. <laughs> and and sometimes those come from just you know little itty bitty increases yeah. in basal metabolic rate or losing right. five to six pounds right. or just making little tweaks. Yeah, and then you're you're setting yourself up for a positive upward spiral, and. um, And that's obviously, uh, it it sometimes feels maladaptive in the short term, but long-term, very, very adaptive. Um, one thing that I I just want to remark about you in general, and then we'll get into gut brain connection and all the juicy stuff is that I really am an admirer of your approach because you are not sensationalist about your content. Um, you are stringent and rigorous about the research. You cite a lot of studies and research. And you're also not fundamentalist yep. about certain approaches. So like you said, you know, there might be some cases where maybe mentodiazepines is appropriate or maybe SSRIs are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, in conjunction with cognitive behavioral therapy mm-hmm. or other forms of talk therapy, right. and then obviously food protocols, et etc. so you're very open-minded, you're willing to um, to
0: thank
2: you. you know to value a lot of different approaches. Yeah. so I really do appreciate that because we we live in a world where sometimes sensationalism is, is rewarded and wins so
0: well, thank you for saying that Jeff you know i I've discovered through my own process and growth that some of my um, spirit of wanting to always include people also comes from, something we talked about offline before we started, which is that I grew up in apartheid in South Africa. Mm. And um, I learned at a very early age, and it's taken many years to work through that in my own therapy, um, what it is like to be excluded on the basis of things like your skin color or your culture. And one of the things that really helped me grow from that, um, positive sort of traumatic growth from that, is never make people feel excluded. So even though I was raised in a Hindu family that's entirely vegetarian, Mm -hmm. as a chef, I cook anything. Um, I had my chef instructors yell at me a lot, but until they tasted my food and realized I had figured out a way to measure ingredients that I would get, you know, over practicing it would get it right. But part of that comes from never wanting people, even on on account of what they eat. So people will say, well, do you only advocate for plant-based diet? I personally am plant-based, but not everyone with a mental health condition wants to only eat plant-based food. So you have to adapt the nutritional elements to that person. And for me, it comes from that uh, deep-set experience of feeling excluded from, you know, in a country that really didn't recognize my color or my culture. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that's important to... to, um, help people feel human despite any mental health issues they may be having.
2: Mm, that's a beautiful thought. Um, as we were discussing before we got in, we, we share a, a love, a mutual love for South Africa. Yeah. You grew up there. I spent yeah. three months there when I was 17 Yes, and I uh, got to enjoy a variety of different, cuisines there. And uh, yeah. obviously Indian cuisine is such a big part of that culture.
0: It, it is. And um, the, the town that I come from, the city that I come from is known for blending their own spices, mm-hmm. all obviously originating in India and having been you know, brought over and recipes and, and all of that. But it's really known for that. And that's one of the reasons as well that I speak so much about spices in the book is that it's an overlooked yeah. ingredient, yeah. In what we eat.
2: Well, we'll get into turmeric and curcumin, hopefully, <laughs> and saffron, yeah. because these spices um, seemingly have a very big impact on our on our mental health.
0: They do. Um, they they really do.
2: Okay, so you're a psychiatrist, but you're a nutritionist, which to me uh, suggests that you're interested in the brain and the function <laughs> of the brain, but you're also just as interested in the function uh, of the gut. Mm-hmm. So we've typically separated those mm-hmm. things in, in Western medicine. We we tend to um, to silo yeah. um, how we look Organism. at different systems and organ systems of the body. Um, but obviously, you see the brain and the gut as connected, and science has started to prove that out. So, um, can you uh, elaborate a little bit on how what's that bidirectional communication look yeah. like? What are the different uh, highways, if you will, uh, between the brain and the gut?
0: That's a great question, you know, because part of it is that mental health is really evolving in the direction of helping us understand it's not an above the neck Mm -hmm. concept and the ongoing uh, research around the gut-brain connection um, has really helped us. You know, because the gut and brain originate from the exact same cell line in the human embryo and the two organs grow, divide and, and grow apart but then are connected by the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, which is a two-way superhighway, um, mm. allowing for, I, I like to tell people, kind of like teenagers text each other all the time. The, these two systems just are sending these text messages in the form of chemical messages.
2: I have three uh, teenagers, by the way. And uh, you're, I have three teenagers, <laughs> yes. by the way, so I'm very familiar with that metaphor.
0: So they continue like this all the time. It's bidirectional. So one organ to the other organ in both ways. But then you start to understand a little bit more about the gut, which is not only are these origins of these two organs the same, but 90 to 95% of serotonin, the happiness hormone, and the serotonin receptor in the gut. Mm. And serotonin is also made there as one of the places it's made. So when you start to put these factors together, you realize that there has to be this food-mood connection when you think about the gut and brain. And, And then when you dive deeper, you realize there is that connection. And that is really... One of the mechanisms that has is front and center in nutritional psychiatry. There are other mechanisms still being researched, but it's, it is something that I have seen um, clinically mm. that that makes sense.
2: Yeah. So there is an actual physical nerve. Yes. Where does that does it start? Kind of in the brainstem. stem or
0: uh, did... yes, in yes, in the brainstem. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And yeah. so, and just because I, I'm I'm not a doctor, so I'm kind of feeling my way through of it. Of course. Yeah. So I assume that. That up and down that nerve, there are electrical signals yes. that are connecting, that are making communications essentially between, between these... neurons. And um, and so there's essentially communication coming up um, from the enteric nervous system yes. um, through like neuropods and neurons yes. in your gut that are sending signals um, to your brain. Like for example, I know that I think there's some neuropods in your gut that yes. can send sugar and send that little... Um, signal back, signal up back to, your to brain, the brain. And there's probably some sort of dopamine reward system going on up there, which is saying, give me more of that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, right. all, all of that. Yeah. True. <laughs> yeah, and, and the enteric nervous system, um, the reason that the gut is called the second brain is because the enteric nervous system is the largest body of nerves mm. um, and neurons outside of the brain. So, And what it does is it wraps around the gut. And so exactly what you're describing is hugely important because there are these real connections happening um, in real time between these organ systems and sending these very explicit chemical messages. And that's where food, the food that we eat as part of the digestive process starts to interact with these messages. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the biggest things in mental health that has really also come forward is our understanding that conditions like depression, anxiety, and even cognitive disorders, focus, energy, um, are related in part to inflammation. And that inflammation gets set up in the gut also. One of the reasons is the food we eat. Um, It's not the only reason, but one of the reasons.
2: So are you referring to foods that might degrade the tight junctures of the epithelium, for example, and lead to intestinal permeability or leaky gut?
0: Over
2: time, and yes. Lipopolysaccharides and endotoxin entering the blood system. The immune system yes. says, wait a minute, these shouldn't be here, sends out an inflammatory response, and we can get then into a cycle of chronic inflammation, and then Over that time. can spread to the brain.
0: That's exactly right. The way that I... Um, speak about it is you know the food that we eat is digested and in part in, in is involved with the gut microbes but the gut microbes are of many different types we study the bacteria but there are archaea viruses fungi protozoa many different types mm-hmm. and when our food products are digested so say you know you had a healthy salad for lunch with a clean protein lots of fiber colorful vegetables Um, delicious foods, lots of spices, it breaks down, the breakdown products usually form short chain fatty acids. And that's what we want to happen because they have a positive impact on the gut. They're protective of that gut lining, the single cell lining and those tight junctions, which are important because it's a single cell lining, you want those tight junctions to be intact. But when we are eating, you know, the sugar, the candy, the chocolates, uh, not dark, not extra dark chocolate, but candy bars, and those types of foods, the breakdown products are actually toxic to mm-hmm. the gut and to mm-hmm. the gut lining. And they start to pierce those tight junctions. And it's exactly as you said, that's what starts to cause that leakiness and leads to bigger problems. And it also upsets the balance of the gut. So you get dis- dysbiosis. Right. And, um, you know, I, I see an uptick of symptoms when people make sudden dietary changes and a month later they're having more anxiety. It's, 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 it's Pretty, you know, it, it's very telling. It's very telling.
2: Yeah, I've got to imagine in your line of work, you are seeing a tremendous correlation between um, kind of self reported anxiety and depression and gut issues, dysbiosis, and leaky that,
0: gut. That's correct. I often get referred uh, individuals from gastroenterologists mm-hmm. for medications saying someone is super anxious. I think it's related to this condition that they have. I think they need a medication, and lo and behold, they walk into my office and I, my virtual office these days, and I spend time unpacking the history, and realize that you know they've had a positive job change, gotten promoted, um, you know, are now traveling more for work, so they're not eating home lunches, they're not packing food to and snacks to take the office because they're in airplanes, landing in different cities. Going to networking events, drinking two glasses of wine a night, whereas in fact they were drinking one on the weekend with their friends when they went out for dinner, um, and the entire diet has changed because of lifestyle. Yeah. And it's not a negative thing in the lifestyle; it's actually a positive thing. The person is improving, you know, doing something better in their career, earning more money, and an uptick of symptoms. And did you, you know, it's it's not immediate, although the microbes respond within two hours the actual changes take time. So you don't see that inflammation set in immediately, but it starts to happen if you persist with that diet. Um, and simple, and that individual and individuals like that, those dietary changes are just going back to the basics of what you were doing mm-hmm. all the time you before you had anxiety actually work
2: uh, yeah. for them. So <clears throat> this could be an overabundance of high glycemic foods, for example, yes. or... Too much alcohol could also be overprescription of, of broad-spectrum antibiotics, or maybe too many proton pump inhibitors, or
0: all of the yeah.
2: toxins, glyphosate. I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of different Correct. inputs that can degrade the Correct. the fast the wall. foods. Fast foods. So right. fast foods.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of these individuals, um, because of <clears throat> lifestyle changes, was I was buying fast foods in, in the airport. Um, you know, running to get onto a plane, arriving in a city late at night, eating out of the bar fridge, you know, candies and 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 snicker bars and things like that, um, or eating bar snacks, again, processed foods. Um, instead of the whole foods she had been eating. And a lot of those, for example, fast foods, uh, French fries have sugar in them. The research and development, have they have, French fries have sugar in them. You don't Man. taste it. But the research and development uh, is a lot of money spent in that to make them hyper palatable, and one of the ways where you start to you know you I know you haven't done this in a while if ever Jeff but you know you walk (laughs) up to the to the um, window and you upsize your fries and then when you get the bigger size you actually eat the whole the whole bag and you wonder well I originally thought I'd get a small and I hear this all the time but they meant they're engineered to be hyper palatable and so you start eating them and you want more. That's because of the sugar that you don't taste, um, and then the the processed vegetable oils that are m- more cost effective for fast food restaurants, and they're very pro-inflammatory to the gut. So, if that's what you're mostly consuming, you you're starting to create that dysbiosis in your gut.
2: And these are these are like hydrogenated oils, like seed hydrogenated
0: oils and- seed oils, uh, vegetable oils, which are frequently labeled vegetable, but often have a large component of. Um, you know, of soy, soybean. Mm. Um, Some oils include things like corn that are pro-inflammatory as well. So many people don't realize that because they're not thinking um, what the products are fried in. Yeah.
2: And so help me pull on this thread for a second. So let's say we talked a lot about the upstream causes of of inflammation. Mm -hmm. When inflammation goes to the brain, the brain has kind of these microglia, right? So Mm -hmm. the glia get inflamed, and does that essentially down-regulate neuron metabolism, and then that's what's contributing to degradation of the hippocampus or loss Mm -hmm. of synaptic connectivity or density? What's going on there? It's it's many
0: of those mechanisms. I I don't think we're 100% sure of which one is causing what. Mm -hmm. As you know, um, we also touched on this, some of the belief around even the serotonin hypothesis has been questioned. Right. And I'm always cautious about sharing that because even though it has been done by you know good researchers, that doesn't mean everyone on, on an SSRI should stop taking it because there are other things involved. But you're absolutely right. There's this very delicate system. The microglia are involved. The neurotransmitters are involved. And the moment that the brain starts to get inflamed and we start to develop neuroinflammation, all of those... Um, cells are impacted, and so are their function, and so are the neurotransmitter uh, uh, transmission. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 sort of a mishmash of many things, but you see it and come out in the symptoms that people have.
2: Yeah, let's talk about serotonin for a second because it's come under some scrutiny over the yeah. last year. Yeah. Um, clearly, there's been a massive <clears throat> deployment of SSRIs, Paxil yeah. and Prozac, mm-hmm. etc. I know plenty of people that have um, experienced some relief Mm -hmm. from SSRIs. Mm -hmm. I think the number needed to treat is like seven or something like that. So not everyone's responding to it, um, but some people, but some people do. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it seems like the modern science is saying that low levels of circulating serotonin in the brain are not particularly associated with mental disorders, depression, anxiety, Mm -hmm. et cetera. but serotonin does seem to play some role um but we haven't necessarily put our thumb on what that role is like maybe um like i've heard some people make the case that serotonin and its relationship to uh, other molecules like growth factor Mm -hmm. is helping to essentially uh contributing to synaptic connectivity <laughs> in the hippocampus, for example. Right. So there's okay. something going on there, but we don't 100% know what it is. I,
0: I, I agree with that. I think that to your point about medications, for the first time in my entire career, more than two decades now, um, Zoloft went on shortage, which is certainly mm. in May, maybe April, May of 2020. And this was because there were new prescriptions so many new prescriptions for Zoloft in that time yep. that there was an actual shortage. So whether it actually helped people or not, I'm not sure because clinically, and even the research has shown this, not everyone responds. Uh, and it takes either so many trials or so many doses or so many different ones um, that it is, it could be one of the things we use, but it shouldn't be the only thing, which, mm-hmm. which brings us back to why nutrition and, and um, metabolism, all of those things are so important. I think that we, we with serotonin we can't throw out you know the expression we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We've gotta understand it's involved in some way and maybe as we research this more we'll understand it better.
2: So to sum up, nutrition is a significant component in understanding a person's lifestyle, metabolic health, and emotional well-being. Our diet impacts our mental health directly. The choices that we make when it comes down to what we eat can significantly impact how we feel emotionally day to day. Choosing anti-inflammatory foods over those high in sugar and processed vegetable oils promote positive effects on our gut health and in turn our mood and ability to cope with stress so next up is dr will cole dr cole is a leading functional medicine expert named one of the top 50 functional and integrative doctors in the nation he specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach for recovery. His most recent book, Gut Feelings, explores how chronic stress, unresolved trauma, and shame can dysregulate our neuroendocrine access, leading to hormonal imbalances and inflammation. The Will's practice is particularly interested in the role of gut health, environmental toxins, and modern cultural influences like social media and how they all work together to shape our well-being. He presents practical strategies to support healing, cultivate resilience, improve vagal tone, and overall health. Here you have Dr. Will Cole. What are some of the uh, ways that our brain or our mind or our psychology Mm. can impact our physiology. Yeah. So it's
1: a lot of what gut feelings is about, is about these, what I call metaphysical meals, like either healthy metaphysical meals or these really saboteurs. And it's a lot more nonlinear, more abstract, more complex to talk about. Right. But things like chronic stress and what that even means and unresolved trauma and what I call shame inflammation in the book, like how do things that cause shame, like unresolved trauma and chronic stress and body shame and food shame and stress about healthy foods, like an orthorexia, how do those things <laughs> impact our biochemistry? How do they raise inflammation levels? How do they how do they de- dysregulate that neuroimmunoendocrine axis just as much as a food that doesn't love us back? Which it's going to it it's it's pervasive, but it's a lot more okay it's easier for me to say, okay, eat these foods that have been shown to support X, Y, and Z. Don't have these ones because they've been shown to sabotage X, Y, and Z. But it's a lot more complex to say, well, don't have shame. You know, don't have, (laughs) just drop that trauma, (laughs) please. Don't have it next time, please. Uh, It doesn't work like that. So we have to really cultivate what are ways that we can metabolize stored trauma? What are ways we can clear this out and retrain our nervous system, retrain our brain, to be more in a parasympathetic state and support vagal tone from that side as well. And that's why, in part, why I called the book Gut Feelings. It's physiological, gut, mm-hmm. and psychological feelings. So both and, not either or, is how you deal with chronic inflammatory problems, metabolic issues, and um, brain health issues. So yeah, it's, Im- it's important. And then like a third piece that I, I-, I see clinically is our... Um, Biotoxins and environmental toxins, mm-hmm. which will sabotage both. It will sabotage both. It'll decrease migrating motor complex, which will breed these bacterial overgrowths. It'll impact the brain because they are neurotoxins, many of them. But quantifying things like glyphosate in the body or quantifying mold toxins or other pathogenic issues are also it's almost like a triad. You know, you know, you have to look at food and then the feeling stuff and then the um, environmental component too.
2: mm mm-hmm. So I think we're all fairly familiar with this idea of fight or flight um, as a biological kind of feature in the system, not Mm -hmm. a bug in the system per se, you know, a snake slithers across the floor. Um,
1: A real snake. A real snake in this case, not a poop. (laughs) Although they
2: might have the same impact, depending. (laughs) Not for you. You're sort of, you're so inured (laughs) to poop. And I'm a dad, so, you uh, know, I had a lot of poop in my life. Yeah. But um, the snake slithers across the floor, and boom, we're programmed to go into, like, you know, what I, you know, uh, sort of our amygdala gets triggered, et cetera, Mm -hmm. and it starts this endocrine cascade. So maybe talk about just that, the HPA axis, and then how modernity has sort of taken what was sort of a biological feature and made it somewhat maladaptive
1: yeah exactly so there's nothing wrong with the sympathetic aspect of the autonomic nervous system it's it kept us alive we would not be here with a healthy nervous system response a healthy fight or flight or freeze response but it's that evolutionary mismatch again right it's we are being chased by that proverbial predator perpetually right and that is that's the issue um and that's our body believes and it's acting as if it's under threat by something that is going to go away, but it just never goes away because of this misalignment, because of this chasm between genetics and epigenetics. So yeah, it is, um, that's what's at play there. So what's happening on a physiological level is you're in this sympathetic fight or flight sh- freeze uh, state, is that neuro endocrine axis, the intersection between the nervous system the immune system, i.e. inflammation, endocrine system, i.e. hormones, is responding to that threat, whether it's a physiological threat or a psychological threat or both. So there's things we talked about in the gut, environmental toxins, or it's unresolved trauma that's happened years ago, but it's living in your body as if it's still happening now. All of that, either physiological and or psychological threat, will put your body more into that stressed state, which will impact that's sympathetic it'll increase the sympathetic so think of it like a seesaw and the sympathetic fight or flight is increased the parasympathetic resting digesting hormone balanced state is decreased and inflammation levels typically will come up cortisol levels and adrenaline are incre- are increased through what's called, as you mentioned, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So it's impacting your blood sugar, impacting your blood pressure to get you out there. It's increasing your heart rate to protect you. Um, And cortisol also acts as an endogenous immunosuppressant. So it's actually a natural anti-inflammatory. So the body is still trying to create homeostasis within that state. Goldilocks state.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But it's a maelstrom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So you have to deal with what's, what is the threat? What is the threat for your body? What is stressing your body out? And that you, you know, for some people, for most of us, it's going to be a bit of both the physiological and the psychological threat. You know, there's some unresolved trauma, stored trauma in the body, some chronic stress in our current life, and some physiological issues like gut issues, environmental toxins, both and need to be de- dealt with, both the gut and the feelings. Mm-hmm. For some people, they are unicorns and they just have one or the other. And, you know, it's their their stress levels are low. Their ACE score is low, which is like childhood experiences that we look at. Right. Um, and it's just the bacterial overgrowth. It's just some foods they have to clean up. Yeah. For most people, it's a little bit more complex than that.
2: Mm-hmm. C- can you unpack how you understand shame mm. s- specifically? Because you talk about shame inflammation yeah. and shame as a source of kind of this dysregulation or hormonal dysregulation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what is shame? How do you understand that, that so, idea? I see shame as
1: it's different than guilt in the sense of people like will conflate those two words or like oh i'm I feel guilty. You know there are some things that are I think a normal healthy actually emotion to have when it comes to guilt, like if I did someone to unintentionally hurt you or if I said something out of anger or reaction, I should feel guilty about saying that, and that's what the whole act of forgiveness and self-compassion and compassion all has to do with which is a normal human experience but shame is an indictment on who you are versus Mm. what you do Mm. like i i i said something rude or rash and i hurt you whether intentionally or unintentionally i feel guilty about that versus saying i'm a bad person for doing that and this is my very nature which is shame and when you're talking about the topics of unresolved trauma that's what many of them feel is mm-hmm. that this is there's something inherently broken or dysfunctional or unlovable and not worthy and that is what shame is mm. it's they mistake it for who they truly are which is a deception
2: mm. that distinction is wonderfully articulated this idea that guilt is really related to an action yeah But shame is related to yourself Mm -hmm. and those feelings of uh, self-loathing or not being good enough, um, you know, that can lead to a lot of social isolation, a lot of loneliness. Um, Mm -hmm. I just read a study from BYU that, um, that posits that loneliness or subjective loneliness is equivalent um, to smoking fifteen cigarettes a day for yeah. your physiology, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know and yeah. just as bad as alcohol mm-hmm. um and a lot of that is tied up with shame right and and absolutely and so how, what are the main forces at large these days that you think are responsible for people feeling that sense of shame?
1: Well, I think it's multifactorial, right, and I think it's not a n- Modern human issue uh, and, and in many ways, I think it's a it's a uh, it's a de- it's a deception that many people have felt for eons, right? Mm-hmm. But I do feel like in our modern world, it's amplified in an interesting new way that we have never expressed, and that's the component that social media plays on shame and on lack and loneliness and that's all kind of tied into each other. And similar studies, I, I read that study about the, the smoking 15 yeah. 50 cigarettes a day is equivalent. Like that's how deadly loneliness can be. And shame is tied into that completely. And um is the more social media people use, especially younger like brains, uh, young adults and kids certainly I mean, it, that's a, I don't want to get on a tangent here, but basically, if the, the United States government is advising to wait until high school for social media for kids, what's the actual age we should be waiting for? Yeah, right. That's the
2: question. Yeah.
1: That's the question. But the because they're, if anything, being yeah. as PC as possible,
2: which yeah. you know, or, they, or as lenient, as to lenient,
1: tech. as lenient to tech, and you know, as yeah, broad spectrum. Right. generalized advice as possible. That's a different subject. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's important for us, no matter what age you are, like, what's your relationship with technology? And is it used in a way that's out of alignment with your nervous system, your, your neuro endocrine axis? Because we mm-hmm. see these highlight reels, these filtered highlight reels that create this in many ways, this sense of community, quote unquote. But it's really not the same. It's out of alignment with this from an evolutionary standpoint. And it's really creating a lot of loneliness because there's this keyboard warrior culture component to it where you can say things you'd never be able to say in in front of somebody, but it's really impacting this loneliness where you're hyper-connected, but actually very disconnected.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think Theodore Roosevelt said comparison is the invisible thief of joy, Mm. something like that. And this was a good hundred years before social media. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if you're conflating or connecting shame with feelings of not being good enough or low self-worth, well, there's nothing like comparison to exacerbate that. Right. Yeah. And so then okay what's going on there so you're living living in a place of loneliness the more lonely you are the more perceived threat you feel Mm -hmm. um and by extension the more activation of this hpa axis there's going to be and Mm -hmm. then here you are on some emotional or emotional but hormonal roller coaster and it's really interesting i mean you, you also point to some of The epigenetic components of trauma and stress, the transgenerational Mm. heritability of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's fascinating. I'm I'm sure you looked at Rachel Yehuda's work, for Mm -hmm. example, where she's studying the Holocaust victims in Cleveland, Ohio, Mm -hmm. um, where there's high prevalence of PTSD Mm-hmm. And strangely, low cortisol levels, mm-hmm. right? Because we as- would associate stress mm-hmm. and trauma with chronic high cortisol levels. But over time, mm-hmm. through either you know wear and tear or feedback loops that basically get sent back up, mm-hmm. the adrenals stop actually functioning <laughs> very well, yeah. and then the receptors the f- for those um, steroid hormones actually get hypersensitive, mm-hmm. and then you're just like crazy, yeah. Um, You get into a very dysregulated state and in some fashion i'm still actually trying to dissect how this all works but methyl groups essentially hypermethylate certain Mm -hmm. genes that are associated with that process of hormone creation and that's actually somehow Either through RNA and sperm or some hmm. fashion passed down, passed gener- down generation to generation. And it's just like, you're not only responsible for your own mental sanity, but for your children's.
1: Great grandmas. Yeah. Great grandmas. Yeah. 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 It's true. It's funny you mentioned Cleveland and Holocaust survivors. I was in Cleveland the other week talking about this stuff, and mm-hmm. there was a group of, Ukrainian women because one of the mm, other subsets of research yeah. was the Holodomor right. in the early 20th century where Joseph Stalin was you know subjugating basically a man-made famine and was starved and killed Ukrainian people mm-hmm. and um and they it's, I mean this is this is researchers looking at intergenerational transgenerational Uh, trauma similar to the Holocaust in Germany and um, in Poland and in the Rwandan people with the Hutus and the Tutsi people are looked at as well but anyways the the Ukrainian women came up to me sobbing and said hey not many people don't even know about this genocide that happened to the Ukrainian people uh, you know in the early 20th century but the fact that they saw that for themselves what the researchers are looking at is an increased risk of metabolic issues, trouble losing weight, autoimmune inflammation issues, and mental health issues. So yeah, it is, as I say in the book, as healing, as trauma can be inherited, so can healing. Yes. And you, mm-hmm. this can be kind of, oh man, this is heavy stuff. Um, well, that, yeah,
2: know. I mean, we just have more agency than we were ever led to believe. We were led to believe that like, the world of genetic determinism, right? It's sort of like this is how you're coded yeah. and good luck. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. and then there's nurture, which is real difficult too. <laughs> and off you go. Yeah. But you know, all this epigenetics and microbiome, even neuroplasticity, you know, all of these emerging fields of study are showing that we're actually not fixed.
1: Right. I mean,
2: yeah. 70, like in the 70, depending on the study that you
1: look at, is anywhere between around 70% to 91% of how long, how healthy somebody lives is due to the choices that people make. So mm-hmm. you, someone asked me, well, do I have to know if it's intergenerational, transgenerational trauma, <laughs> or is it me? Not necessarily. Yeah, not if really. anything, I think the research around that, I hope gives people some grace on themselves and some lightness to know, oh, wow, I'm not just a broken person. I'm not mm-hmm. just like, I'm not just a mess up. It's just, there may be things that you can't even see in this lifetime that are impacting how and why and your health, where you're at right now. But mm-hmm. you can undo it no matter you know how heavy the things are. I've seen people up against seemingly insurmountable things, overcome them. Mm-hmm. And part of it's intergenerational. Part of it is life experiences that you've had in this life.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, just as my own end-of-one experiment, um, you know, I, I put on a continuous glucose monitor about a year and a half ago or so. And uh, I was under the impression that I was a very, very healthy human being. Um, I was exercising and eating like what I thought was pretty well. And lo and behold, I was basically pre-diabetic. I was running very, very high blood glucose levels. And, you know, it was curious. I started trying to like pull it apart Um and yes i certainly modified my diet for sure and that helped Mm -hmm. but you know as i started to really try to understand you know some of the root causes of what was going on why i was running 125 130 uh, milliliter per deciliter fasting glucose levels and then experiencing like massive postprandial spikes like up to 200 all the time i was like what is going on and essentially i just Built insulin resistance over progressively over 15, 20 years of essentially from stress. Mm -hmm. And, you know, is that the only contributor or determinant? Maybe probably not. You know, I was probably maybe having like a few too many cookies after dinner or something Mm -hmm. like that. Certainly my sleep was compromised. But If I really look at, like, then the protocols that I adopted since that time Mm -hmm. for self-care, specifically around stress, Mm -hmm. specifically around meditation and breathing, and hopefully Mm -hmm. we can talk about a few of those protocols that you recommend in the book, I was really able to, what I can best understand, reduce my levels of stress, reduce cortisol, which is directly... Um, associated with raising blood sugar levels, mm-hmm. and that was a huge part of it. And also, I think fixed my gut in the process. And um, and a lot of that was just my ability to manage and process
1: stress. Yeah. Well, I am thinking of even you saying, "Well, I'm st- stressed," and you know, then it's maybe I had too many cookies too. But isn't it? I see this so so often with patients is that when they are in a stress state they're more likely to go for the cookies right right. they are stress eating so so much of it is and stress will impact your sleep too so it is uh
2: right you're on this spectrum and you're either spiraling this way or you can (laughs) but you can spiral this way yeah So let's talk about some of the protocols because, you know, you do have a program, specifically a 21-day program in the book um, around, you know, both food protocols, but also feelings protocols. I'm not sure I categorize that properly, mm-hmm. but um, take us through some of those kind of on both sides. Yeah, sure. So it's a 21-day protocol.
1: That is meant to look when I'm talking about unresolved trauma or chronic stress, I'm not saying that you're going to completely undo all your unresolved trauma in 21 days. But what I want you to show, I want to show you is what this what's exciting science show that are effective ways to regulate that neuro axis. So you can stay consistent with the tools that you love the most or resonate with you the most. You can stay consistent with the most. So you can see these changes over weeks and months and years for some people, but to continue to heal and continue to work on these things that are complex. So every day there's a gut tool and a feelings tool. So you have a physiological, clinical nutrition, food as medicine Mm -hmm. tool. And then on the feeling side, it's some sort of mind-body somatic practice, some therapy that has been shown to support that vagal tone, support that neuroimmunoenvironmental axis. So, um, for example, on a nutrition day, on a or on a gut action item day, every day there's a gut and a feelings. But yeah. on one day for gut, I talk about soups and stews, right? Which mm. is something that we use clinically a lot for people that have gut-brain axis issues. And we adapt versions of what's called a GAPS protocol, which is an acronym, G-I-P-S, gut and psychology syndrome, or gut and physiology syndrome, i.e. the gut inflammation axis, Hmm. or the gut brain axis, depending on what you're talking about, either autoimmune issues or anxiety, depression, fatigue, autism, um, ADHD, brain fog. So we use soups and stews as a way to be a nutritional support for the gut-brain axis and improve as you lower inflammation and give the gut a reprieve, a proverbial siesta, I think of it as for your digestive system, you're gonna improve vagal tone over time. Mm. And you're gonna help that neuro, immune endocrine axis, that crosstalk between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. So it, by not having lots of raw foods, you're allowing your gut to repair, which digesting foods, even healthy foods, can be a, a lot of work. Right. And by giving, and this is nothing new, right? I mean, this is, we call it gaps now in in, in nutrition. And we, but <laughs> if you look at Ayurvedic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine, this is nothing new. I mean, soups mm-hmm. and stews have been used ancestrally for thousands of years for these gut brain access issues. So we are just, now we know why it's working and it's a very effective intervention from a nutrition mm-hmm. standpoint. So
2: we, and is this just because it, it requires less energy to yeah. digest or metabolize soups? Basically? Exactly. Yeah. So
1: instead of breaking down all those fibers, all those proteins, everything's a lot, it's soft, it's cooked. Yeah, I even have some patients puree vegetables
2: down. Yeah. Do you ever at, have kitchery? Do you like kitchery? No, I don't know. Ooh, I got to turn you on to kitchery. What, tell me okay. about kitchery. Oh, it's an in traditional Indian so okay. mung bean, mm, suey, yeah, stoopy su. Mung beans, <laughs> mung stew. beans,
1: and lentils are actually two of the best. Most digestible, agreeable legumes mm. I find. Mung beans and lentils. Again, mm. right? Yeah. Ancestors knew some things. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like the height of hubris, right? To be th- that we were, were somehow so sophisticated, but we're just remembering things that they would have called life, right? Yeah. Uh,
2: but- well, we always discover yoga. Yeah. Or discover <laughs> local organic food yeah. or discover meditation. Yeah. Or, you
1: know. Well, I, I was something, sub- <laughs> what was it? Such an- uh, ethos of commune is the try old and old and true old and true that's what it was yeah right right. so that's what these are right and and even times of fasting is reparative to the gut brain axis too so these are things we can lean into from a gut side and on a feeling side i mean every day every there's 21 different tools but breath work is one of them i talk about holotropic Mm -hmm. breath work in the book and i mean i'm speaking to the master here but Just a way to use breath to metabolize stored trauma in the body. And talk about somatic practices. Yoga, tai chi would be under that category. Uh, Drumming, dance, tapping can all be uh, considered that. Um, And talk about EMDR, the research around Mm. that type of therapy. All as a way to regulate the nervous system and strengthen that vagus nerve.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where I heard this, but it made so much sense when I did. It might've been from you. Um, That is that we aren't just what we eat, but we are actually what we absorb. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I say that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I think a
2: lot of folks are eating in front of the TV by themselves or even worse, or maybe in their car or even worse on while they're actually scrolling through social media. Why would do and doing any of those things actually uh, inhibit one's ability to actually properly absorb food?
1: Yeah. And it's, it's part of our culture, right it's distracting and numbing, but it's 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 contributing to that sympathetic overactivation, which is already overactivated so going yeah. back to that seesaw analogy, if that sympathetic's already overactive and you're doing something that's perpetuating that overactivation, it is not conducive to that resting digesting so yeah. eating mindfully whenever possible to be using i mean I, I actually in the book, I talk about using meals as medicine, but as a meditation as well. So mm. like take that 5, 10, 15 minutes as a mindfulness ex- experience too. I mean, there's so many benefits, but one of it, just on a practical level is supporting the parasympathetics. You can actually digest your food because you're right. We aren't just what we eat. We are what we absorb. Yeah. And I see many people that think I'm supplementing all the right supplements. <laughs> I'm eating all the right foods. But I, they're serving their body that big slice of stress every day, and they're they're still nutrient deficient. Yeah. I look at labs, and their magnesium, selenium, iodine, vitamin D, iron are all low. Well, why mm. is that? And part of that is in supporting that that gut brain axis, so your body can absorb foods appropriately.
2: Mm, yeah, I mean, I've tried to start to, um, I mean, I. I hear my kids um, uh, (laughs) from the distance, so they're perfect timing to bring them in. We have a nightly ritual around the dinner table called Rosebud Thorn, where we all report back on the rose, the bud, and the thorn of our day. And that just kind of brings us down and brings us into connection. And then we start eating from that parasympathetic state. People say grace, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, People have a gratitude practice before. They yeah. put something in their mouth. That's a really nice one. Just to look down at your food, to take a few breaths, to appreciate all of the toil and labor that went into it, the miracle that it even exists in the first place, mm-hmm. and just hmm, stop and and then the knock-on impact of that is actually good digestion. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and the research
1: yeah. I talk about in the book of of yeah. self-compassion and gratitude. Yeah, it's very conducive to the parasympathetic and it lowers inflammation levels because of that, because we are working on these mechanisms.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You have a couple of specific breathwork um, modalities in there. I noticed that you mentioned the 478, which mm-hmm. I often associate with old school Dr. Andrew Weil. Mm-hmm. But um, what's that one? What's the 478?
1: Well, it's it's going in and out using counting and you don't, it doesn't have to be for specific four, seven, eight. I mean, I love, I do the box breathing probably more than anything yeah. where you're just breathing in uh, for four seconds. You could do however time you want and then holding for that same amount of time and then exhaling for the same amount of time. But four, seven, eight, they're just all different ways to use inhala- inhalation, exhalation as a timing as a centering, it's a way to ground, getting you out of your head, into your body and using breath as an anchor in meditation.
2: Yeah, and even just becoming conscious of your breath. Right. Right, Right, absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, and I'm a culprit of this, but I think most of us in the modern world, we take these like short snippy little breaths. I mean, generally not even through our nose. (laughs) No, and you watch a
1: baby breathing and these belly breaths and babies that we just lose, right? Mm-hmm. We want to suck it in. <laughs>
2: yes.
1: Not that sweet baby.
2: Not yeah. That sweet, yeah. Well, you talk about belly breathing as well. Yeah. What's that? You just put your, you yeah. put your hand, put your on hand there. on
1: your stomach. It's such a yoga thing, right? It's yeah. a, to to actually see your stomach expand and contract. It's a great way to support vagal tone, mm-hmm. and that's why babies have such regulated nervous systems until we until this sad world messes them up. (laughs) We have to
2: heal ourselves again. Okay, to sum it up, there are countless ways in which the brain, mind and psychology can impact our physiology. Factors like chronic stress and unresolved trauma can affect the neuroendocrine axis leading to systemic inflammation and dysregulation. There is no discounting the interconnectedness of physiological and psychological factors in addressing health issues, including mental health issues. In tandem with nourishing our guts, we must be nourishing our minds. If we can take up eating mindfully, we can also practice moving, breathing, and thinking mindfully. Cultivating habits that promote a parasympathetic state and healthy vagal tone ultimately leads to reducing the inflammation at the root of so many of our modern mental woes. Now, if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you'll never miss another episode. Leave us a comment and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to share our content with others who might benefit from this valuable information. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name's Jeff Krasnow. And I'm here for you.